0: Chapter fourteen of The Mountebank by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Ellers. Chapter fourteen. While Lady Aureole Dane was rocking about the Outer Hebrides, we find Andrew Lackaday in Paris, confronted with the grim necessity of earning a livelihood. His pre war savings had amounted to no fortune, and in spite of Elodie's economy and occasional earnings with her birds, they were well-nigh spent. The dearness of everything! Elodie wrung her hands. Where once you had change out of a franc, now you had none out of a five-franc note. He could still carry on comfortably for a year, but that would be the end of it. When he propounded the financial situation, Elodie did not understand. I must work, said he. But generals don't work, she protested incredulously. Even the war had developed little of the Marseille-Gamine's conceptions of life. A general, she knew no grades, a modest brigadier ranking second only to a field-marshal, was a general. He commanded an army, a military demigod invested with a glamour and glory which, ipse facto, of its own essence, provided him with ample wealth. And, once a general, always a general. The mere fact of no longer being employed in the command of armies did not matter. The rank remained and with the rank the golden stream to maintain it. According to popular legend, the Oriental ascetic, who concentrates his gaze on the centre of his body and his thoughts on the syllable OM, arrives at a peculiar mental condition. So the magic word on which she had so long meditated had its hypnotic effect on Elodie. And when he patiently explained, "'They give you nothing at all for being a general?' she almost screamed. "'Nothing at all,' said Andrew. "'Then what's the good of being a general?' "'None that I can see,' he replied with his grim smile. Emily's illusions fell clattering round about her ears. Not her illusions as to generals, but her illusions as to Andrew and British military prestige. It was a strange army that no longer acknowledged its high commanders. A strange country that could scrap them. Were British generals real, like French generals Liotte and Manuri and Foch before he became Maréchal. She was bitterly disappointed. She had lived for nearly a year in Andrew's glory. Now there seemed to be no shine in it whatever. He wore no uniform. He received no pay. He was a mere civilian. He had to work for his living like any demobilised poilu who returned to his counter or his conductor's step on the tramway she made such a flourishing among all her acquaintances over son marie le General? She went off by herself and wept. The cook whom she had engaged, coming to lay the cloth in the tiny dining-room, found her sobbing with her arms on the table. What was the matter with madame? Ah, ma pauvre Ernestine, je suis bien malheureuse. Ernestine could think of only one cause for a lady's unhappiness. Had Monsieur le General then been making her infidelities? All allowances should be made for the war. On every side she had heard tales of the effects of such long separations, but on the other hand she had heard of many reconciliations. Apply a little good-will, that was all. Monsieur le General was a man, comme tout le monde. She was certain that the object of his warrior fancy was not worth madame, and he would quickly realise the fact. She had only to make much of him, and give him everything he liked to eat. As soon as the stream of words ceased, Elodie vehemently denounced the disgusting state of her mind. She must have a foul character to think of such things. She bade her haughtily to mind her own business. Why, then, asked the outraged Ernestine, did Madame declare she was miserable? To invite sympathy and then reject it, did not argue a fine character on the part of Madame. Also, when a woman sits down and weeps like a cow, mon Dieu, there must be a reason. Perhaps if Monsieur was not at fault, then— "'I order you to be silent,' stormed Elodie, interrupting the intolerable suggestion. "'My reasons you couldn't possibly understand. Get on with your work and set the table.' She made a dignified exit, and returned to the Salon, where Andrew was writing. "'Are these servants, since the war, the insolence of them?' "'What have they been doing now?' he asked sympathetically. She would not say. "'Why worry him with such vulgarities?' "'But the housekeeper's life these days was not an easy one.' "'Tiens!' she cried with a swift resolve. "'I'll tell you all. "'What you said about yourself, a, a general only a name, "'rejected and cast on the world without money, "'made me very unhappy. "'I didn't want you to see me cry. "'So I went into the salle à manger.' And then a dramatic reproduction of the scene, the insolence of the woman. Andrew rose and drew out his pocket-book. "'She shall go at once. What's her wages?' But Elodie looked at her aghast. What? Dismiss, Ernestine. He must be mad. Ernestine, a treasure-drop from heaven! Didn't he know that servants did not grow like the leaves on the trees in the Champs-Elysees? And cooks! They were worth their weight in gold. In the army he could say to an orderly, Fichement le Comte, because there were plenty of others. But in civil life, no. She forbade him to interfere in domestic arrangements, the nice conduct of which she had proved herself perfectly capable of determining and then, in her queer, twisted logic, she said, clutching the lapels of his coat and looking up into his face, "'And it's not true what she said? You have never made me infidelities?' He passed his delicate hand over his forehead, and smiled somewhat wearily. "'You may be sure, my dear, I have been faithful to you.' She glanced away from him, somewhat abashed. Now and then his big simplicity frightened her. She became dimly aware— that the report of the cook's chatter had offended the never-comprehended delicacies of his soul. She murmured, "'Je te demande bien pardon, André.' "'There's no reason for that, my dear,' said he. She went over to her birds. Andrew resumed his writing. But after a minute or two his pen hung idle in his hand. Yes, he had spoken truly. He had been faithful to her in that he had fled from divine temptation.' For her sake he had put the other woman and the glory that she signified out of his life. All through the delicious intercourse Elodie had hung at the bottom of his heart, a dead weight, maybe, be, but one which he could not in honour or common humanity cut off. For Elodie's sake he had held himself in stern restraint, and uttered no word that might be interpreted as that of a lover. As far as Lady Aureole Dane knew, as far as anyone on this earth knew, His feelings towards her were nothing more than those of a devoted and grateful friend. So does the well-intentioned ostrich, you may say, bury its head and imagine itself invisible. But the ostrich is desperately sincere, and so was Andrew. Presently he turned. If that woman says such vulgarities again, she must go at once. "'I shall see that she has no opportunity,' said Elodie. For a time Andrew sought in France that which he had failed to find in England, but with even less chance of success. The gates to employment in England had been crowded with demobilised officers. Only the fortunate, the young, content with modest beginnings, those with money enough to start new avocations, had pushed through. These had been adventurers like himself. The others had returned to the office, or counting-house, or broad acres from which they had sprung. In France he found no employment at all. The gates round which the de wistfully gathered led no whither. As at the war office, so at military headquarters in Paris. Brass-hatted friends wrung him warmly by the hand, condoled with his lot, and genially gave him to understand that he stood not a dog's chance of getting in anywhere. Why hadn't he worried the people at home for a foreign billet? There were plenty going, but as to their nature they confessed vagueness. He had put in for several, said he, but had always been turned down. The friends shook their heads. In Paris, nothing doing. Andrew walked away sadly. Perhaps a spirit-proof against rebuffs, a thick-skinned persistence, might have eventually prevailed in London, to set him on some career in social reconstruction of the world. His record stood, and he did only unblushing flaunting before the eyes of authority for it to be recognised. But Andrew Lackaday, proud and sensitive, was a poor seeker after favour. All his promotion and his honour had come unsought. He had hated the braggadocio of the rainbow row of ribbons on his khaki tunic, which army discipline alone forced him to wear. It was Elodie, too, who had fixed into his buttonholes the little red rosette of the officer of the legion. That at least he could do for her. Success, such as it was before the war, he detained, he knew not how. The big drum of the showman had ever been the, an engine of abhorrence. Others had put him on the track of things. Elodie, Bacchus. He'd sternly suppressed vulgarity in posters. He'd never intrigued, like most of his craft, for press advertisement. Over and over again had Bacchus said, "'Raise a thousand or two and give it to me or Moignon to play with, and we'll boom you into all the capitals of the earth. There's a fortune in you.' but Andrew, to whom publicity was the essence of his calling, would have none of it. He did his work and conducted his life in his own way, earnest and efficient. In the war, of course, he found his real vocation, but he passed out of the war as unknown to the general public as any elderly Tommy in a labour battalion. Never a photograph of him had appeared in the illustrated papers. The head of a great government department, to whom Lady Aureole had mentioned his name, had never heard of it and when she suggested that the State should hasten to secure the services of such men, he had replied easily, "'Men of his distinction are as thick as blackberries, that's how we won the war.' Unknown to Lackaday, she had tried to see what influence she could command. Socially, as the rather wild-headed daughter of an impoverished and obscure earl, she could do but little. She too was a poor intriguer. She could only demand with blatant vividness— Once, on a flying visit to Lord Manshire, she tried to interest him in the man whom, to her indignation, he persisted in styling her protégé. He still, she urged, had friends in high places, even in the dreadful government at which he railed. "'Never heard of the man,' he growled. "'Blackaday! Blackaday!' he shook his white head. "'Who was his father?' She confessed that she didn't know. He was alone in the world. He had sprung from nowhere.' The old earl refused to take any interest in him. Such fellows always fell on their feet. Besides, he would tried to put in a word for young Ponsonby, and had got snubbed for his pains. He wasn't going to interfere any more. She learned that the appointment of a soldier would be made to a vacant colonial governorship. A certain general's recommendation would carry weight. She passed the information on to Andrew. This she could do without offending his pride. "'Very sorry, my dear fellow,' said the general.' you're the very man for the job but you know what these colonial office people are they will have an old regular as a matter of fact they appointed another brigadier who had started the war with a new yeomanry commission a member of a well-known family with a wife who had seen to it that neither his light nor hers should be hidden under a bushel in the frantic scramble for place the inexperienced in the methods of the scrum were as much left out in the cold as a timid old maid of what Americans call a bargain-counter. He stood lost behind the throng, and his only adviser, Lady Auriol, stood by his side in similar noble bewilderment. On his appointment to a brigade, Bacchus had written, "'I'm always tempted to make your fortune in spite of yourself. What a sensation! What headlines! Famous variety artist becomes a general!' Companion pictures in the Daily Mail, Petit Patou and Brigadier General Lackaday. Everybody who has heard of Petit Patou would be mad to hear of General Lackaday, and all who had heard of Soldier Andrew would be crazy to know about Petit Patou. You'd wake up in the morning like Byron and find yourself famous. You'd be the darling hero of the British Empire. But you always were a wooden-headed idiot. To which Andrew had replied in raging fury, to the vast entertainment of Horatio Bacchus. All of this is to show that, notwithstanding his supreme qualities of personal courage, command and military intuition, Andrew Lackaday, as a would-be soldier of fortune, proved a complete failure. For him, as he presented himself, the tired world, in its nebulous schemes of reconstruction, had no place. Every day, when he got home, Elodie would ask, "Emile, eh have you found anything?' And he would say, gaunt and worried, but smiling. Not yet. As the days passed, her voice grew sharper, until it seemed to carry the reproach of the wife of the labourer out of work. But she never pressed him further. She knew his moods and his queer silences, and the inadvisability of forcing his confidence. In spite of her disappointment and disillusion, some of the glamour still invested him. A man of mystery, inspiring a certain awe, He frightened her a little. A no-man's land, unknown, terrifying, on which she dared not venture a foot, lay between them. He was the kind and courteous ghost of the sergeant and the major with whom she had made high festival during the war. At last, one afternoon, he cast the bomb calmly at her feet. "'I've just been to see Moignon,' said he. "'Eh bien?' "'He says there will be no difficulty.' She turned on him her coarse, puzzled face. "'No difficulty in what?' "'In going back to the stage.' She sank upon her yellow and brown-striped sofa by the wall, and regarded him open-mouthed. To "'I must do like all other demobilised men. Return to my trade.' Elodie nearly fainted. For months the prospect had hung over them like a doom— ever since the brigade which he commanded in England had dissolved through demobilisation, and he, left in the air, had applied disastrously to the War Office for further employment. He had seen others, almost his equal in rank, swept relentlessly back to their old, uninspiring avocations. A bayard of a colonel of a glorious battalion of a famous regiment, a fellow with decorations barred two or three times over, was now cooped up in his solicitor's office in Lothbury, E.C., Breaking his heart over the pettifoggery of conveyances. A gallant boy, adjutant at twenty-two in the company of which he was captain, a V.C. and God knows what else besides, was back again in the close atmosphere of the junior department of a public school. One of his old seconds in command was resuming his awful frock-coated walk down the aisles of a suburban drapery store. The flabby, soulless octopus of civil life reached out its tentacles and dragged all these heroic creatures into its maw of oblivion then another a distinguished actor and a more distinguished soldier a man with a legendary record of fearlessness had sloughed his armour and returned to the theatre that thought he was his own case but no the actor took up the high place of histrionic fame which he had abandoned he was the exponent of a great art the dual supremacy brought the public to his feet His appearance was the triumph both of the artist and the soldier. No, he Lackaday held no such position. He recalled his first talk with Bacchus, in which he had insisted that his mountebanking was an art, and with his hard-gained knowledge of life rejected the sophistry. To hold an audience spellbound by the interpretation of great human emotion was a different matter from making a zany of oneself and, upside down playing a one-string fiddle behind one's head, and uttering degraded sounds through painted, grinning lips, in order to appeal to the inane sense of humour of the grocer and his wife. No, there was all the difference in the world. The comparison filled him less with consolation than with despair. The actor, mocking the octopus below, had calmly stepped from one rock pinnacle to another. He himself, Andrew Lackaday, in the depths, felt the irresistible grip of the horror twining round his middle. Put him in the midst of a seething mass of soldiery, he could command, straighten out chaos into mechanical perfection of order, guide willing men unquestioned into the jaws of hell, put him on the stage of a music hall, and he could keep six plates in the air at a time. Outside these two spheres, he could, as far as the world would try him, do nothing. He had to live. He was young, under forty. The sap of life still ran rich in his veins. Not only must he live, but the woman bound to him by a hundred ties, the woman woven by an almost superstitious weft into his early career, the woman whose impeccable loyalty as professional partner had enabled him to make his tiny fortune, the woman whose faithful affection had persisted through the long years of the war's enforced neglect, the woman who, without his support—unthinkable idea—would perish from inanition. He knew her. Elodie must live. "'in the comfort and freedom from anxiety "'to which the years of unquestioning dependence had accustomed her. "'Cap and Bells again. There was no other way out. "'After all, it, perhaps it was the best and most honest. "'Even if he had found a semi-military or administrative career abroad, "'what would become of Elodie? Not in a material sense, of course. "'The same provision would be made for her welfare as during the last five years.' but the abnormal state of war had made normal their separation. In altered circumstances, would she not have the right to cry out against his absence? Would she not be justified in the eyes of every right-thinking man? Yet the very conditions of such an appointment would prevent her accompanying him. The problem had appeared insoluble. Desperately he had put off the solution till the crisis should come but he had felt unhappy, shrinking from the possibility of base action. The thought of Elodie had often paralysed his energy in seeking work. Now, however, he could face the world with a clear conscience. He had cut himself adrift from Lady Aureole and her world. Fate linked him for ever to Elodie. All that remained was to hide his honours and his name under the cloak of Petit Patou. It took him some time to convince Elodie of the necessity of returning to the old life. She repeated her cry that generals do not perform on the music-hall stage. The decision outraged her sense of the fitness of things. She yielded as to an irresistible and unreasoning force. "'And I, then, must I tour with you as before?' she asked in dismay, for she was conscious of increased coarseness of body and sluggishness of habit. He frowned. "'It is true I might find another assistant.' "'But she quickly interrupted the implied reproach. "'She could not fail him in her duty. "'No, no, I will go. "'But you will have to teach me all over again. "'I only ask for information. "'We'll begin rehearsals then as soon as possible,' he replied with a smile. "'A few days afterwards, Bacchus, who had been absent from Paris, "'entered the Salon with his usual unceremoniousness, "'and beheld an odd spectacle.' The prim chairs had been piled on the couch by the wall, the table pushed into a corner, and on the vacant space Elodie, in her old dancer's practising kit, bodice and knickerbockers, once loose but now skin-tight to grotesqueness, and Andrew, in undervest and old grey flannels, were perspiringly engaged with pith-balls in the elementary art of the juggler. Elodie, on beholding him, clutched a bursting corsage with both hands, uttered a little squeak, and bolted like an overfed rabbit. Bacchus laughed out loud. What the devil? Is this the relaxation of the great or the aberrations of the asylum? My dear old chap, I'm so glad you've come back. Sit down. He shifted the table which blocked the way to the two armchairs by the stove. eddie and I are getting into training for the next campaign. He mopped his forehead, wiped his hands, and with the old acrobat instinct, jerked the handkerchief across the room. "'You're looking very well,' said he. "'I'm splendid,' said Bacchus. The singer indeed had a curiously prosperous and distinguished appearance, due not only to a new brown suit and clean linen and well-fitted boots, but also to a sleekness of face and person which suggested comfortable living. His hair, now quite white, brushed back over the forehead, was neatly trimmed. His sallow cheeks had lost their gaunt hollows. His dark eyes, though preserving their ironical glitter, had lost the hunger-lit gleam of wolfishness. "'Have you signed a Caruso contract for Covent Garden?' laughed Andrew. "'I've done better. At Covent Garden you've got to work like the devil for your money. i made a contract with my family. No work at all. Agreement? Just to bury the hatchet. "'Theophilus, that's the archdeacon, performed the funeral service. "'He has had a stroke, poor chap. They sent for me.' Elodie told me, said Andrew. He's been very good to me during the war. Otherwise, I should have been reduced to picking up cigar ends with a pointed stick on the boulevard. A damned precarious livelihood, too, considering the shortage of tobacco in this benighted country. He took it into his venerable head that he was going to die and desired to see me. Voltaire remorse on his deathbed, you know. I, I fail to follow, said the literal Andrew. All his life, he had lived an unbeliever in me now your military intelligence grasps it my brother ronald the runner of the pawnee indian head flattening system of education and his wife especially his wife the daughter of a lay brother of a bishop who's got a baronetcy for making an enormous fortune out of the war wouldn't have me at any price but theosophilus must have muttered some incantation which frightened them so they surrendered poor old theophilus and i had a touching meeting he's about as lonely a thing as you could wish to meet "'He married an American heiress who died about eight years ago, "'and he's as rich as Croesus. "'We're bosom friends now. "'As for Mrs. Ronald, I sang her songs of Araby, "'including Gounod's Ave Maria, with lots of tremolo, "'and convinced her that I'm a saintly personage. "'It's my proud boast that on my account "'Ronald and herself never spoke for three days. "'I spent a month in the wilds of Westmoreland with them, "'and as soon as Theophilus got on the mend—' He's already performing semi-archidiaconical functions. I put my hands over my eyes and fled. My God, what a crowd! Give me a drink. I've got four weeks' arrears to make up. Andrew went into the salle à manger and returned with brandy, siphon, and glasses. Help him back, as he asks. And now what are you going to do? Nothing, my dear friend, absolutely nothing. I wallow in the ill-gotten matrimonial gains of Theophilus and Ronald. I wallow modestly, it is true. "'The richer strata of mire I leave to hogs, with whom I am out of sympathy. "'You'll have observed that I am a man of nice discrimination. "'I choose my hogs. It is the art of life.' "'Well, here's to you,' said Andrew, lifting up his glass. "'And to you.' "'Bacchus emptied his glass at a draught, "'breathed a sigh of infinite content, and held it out to be refilled. "'And now that I've told you the story of my life, what about you? "'What's the meaning of this?' He waved a hand, this reversion to type. "'You behold Petit Patou Redivivus,' said Andrew. Bacchus regarded him in astonishment. "'But my dear fellow generals can't do things like that.' "'That's the cry of Elodie.' "'She's a woman with whom I'm in perfect sympathy,' said Bacchus. Elodie entered, cooler, less dishevelled, in her eternal wrapper. She rushed up to Bacchus, wrung both his hands, overjoyed to see him. He must pardon her flight, but really, she was in a costume, and not even till she took it off did she know that it was split. Oh, mon Dieu! Right across! With a sweep of the hand, she frankly indicated the locality of the disaster. She laughed. Well, it was good that he had arrived at last. He would be able to put some sense into André. He, a general, to go back to the stage. It was crazy. He would give André advice, good counsel. That was what he needed. How André could win battles when he was so helpless in other things, she could not understand.' She seized him by the shoulders, and smiled into his face. Mais toi, qui es si intelligent, dis quelque chose. To say anything, my dear Elodie, while you are speaking, remarked Beckers, is beyond the power of mortal man. But now that you are silent, I will say this. It is time for dejeuner. I am intoxicated with the sense of pecuniary plenitude. I invite you both to eat with me on the boulevard, where we can discuss these high matters." "'But it is you that are crazy,' cried Elodie, gasping at the unprecedented proposal, which in itself shook, like an earthquake, her intimately constructed conception of Horatio Bacchus. And on the boulevard, too.' Her soul rose up in alarm. "'You are wanting in your wits. One can't eat anywhere, even at a restaurant of the second class, under a hundred francs for three persons.' Bacchus, with an air Louis, says, implied that one, two, or three hundred francs were as dirt in his fingers. But Elodie would have none of it. She would be ashamed to put so much money in her stomach. "'I have,' said she, "'for us two, eggs au beurre noir and a blanquette de veau, and what is enough for two is enough for three, and you must stay and eat with us, as always.' "'I wonder,' said Bacchus, "'whether Andrew realises what a pearl you are.' So he stayed to lunch, and repeated the story of his good fortune, to which Elodie listened enraptured as to a tale of hidden treasure of which he was the hero. But never a word could he find in criticism of Andrew's determination. The quips and causticities that a couple of years ago would have flowed from his thin ironical lips were arrested unformulated at the back of his brain. He became aware not so much of a change as of a swift development of the sterner side of Andrew's character. Of himself he could talk sardonically enough. He could twit Elodie with her foibles in his old way. But of Andrew, with his weather-beaten mug of a face marked with new, deep lines of thought and pain, sitting there, courteous and simple, yet preoccupied, strangely aloof, the easy cynic felt curiously afraid. And when Elodie taxed him with pusillanimity, he glanced at Andrew. He has made up his mind, he replied. Some people's minds are made of sand and water. Others of stuff composed of builders' weird materials that harden into concrete. Others, again, have iron bars run through the mass reinforced concrete. That's Andrew. It's a beast of a mind to deal with, as we have often found, my dear. But what would you have? The animal is built that way. You flatter me, grinned Andrew. But I don't see what the necessity of earning bread and butter has to do with a reinforced concrete mind. "'It's such an undignified way of earning it,' protested Elodie. "'I think,' said Bacchus, "'it will take as much courage for our poor friend to re-become Petit Patu "'as it took for him to become General Lackaday.' Andrew's face suddenly glowed, and he shot out his long arm with his bony wrists many inches from his cuff, and put his delicate hand on Bacchus's shoulder. "'My dear fellow, why can't you always talk like that?' "'I'm going to.' replied Bacchus, pausing the act of lighting one of Elodie's special reserve of pre-war cigars. Don't you realise I'm just transplanted from a forcing bed of high Anglican platitude? But Elodie shrugged her fat shoulders in some petulance. You men always stick together, she said. End of chapter 14